Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today my guest is Dan Ciccone. Dan is currently the founder and CEO of Stacked Entertainment. Over the course of his career, he has pulled together some of the biggest partnerships in esports and worked with some of the most impactful influencers. He's going to share a lot about what to do right and what brands are doing wrong and why we should support our space in a very positive way. Let's talk to Dan. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. All right, my good friend Dan Ciccone, thank you for joining me on another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Uh, we have known each other for a few years. We were introduced by our good friend Donnie Newfus, who is the nicest guy of all time when I was at GameStop. I got to know you a little bit there, and then we've worked together in different capacities over the years. Tell us what you are doing now with Stacked Entertainment. Well, first, appreciate you in inviting me in. Got to admit, I'm a little disappointed that I wasn't your, the, the first guest on your show, but I'm happy to be here now. I had to work my way up to you, Doc. You know, I mean, you're here. I had to, had to climb that ladder. So, yeah, no, look, I mean, I appreciate what you're doing, the, the way you're focusing on the industry, the way that you are, I think is super help, super helpful. You know, for me, Dan Ciccone, Stacked Entertainment, where we are now, it's been a bit of an evolution. And, and the thing that's really interesting is when I tell you where we're at now, it's very different than where we were six months or a year ago, and probably where I will be and where the company will be six months or a year from now. Sure. So, but right now, basically what I tell people is that we're a property representation, talent representation, and content development firm that's steeped in esports and, and gaming. Cool. So take me back. I, I know you've done some of the biggest deals in esports. You've worked with some of the biggest influencers, but it wasn't always always this way. And it, I always love telling the stories of how people found their way into the industry. So from what I understand early on, you had a bunch of crappy sales jobs. It looked maybe looked like a job hopper on paper on the resume, but tell me about that experience and what you were really doing in the back of your mind there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll probably get a little ranty. So feel free to to, to cut me off. I assume that was the case. Right? But, but going way back, look, I mean, even in college, I was always interested in entertainment, broadcast. I, I got my degree in economics with, with a minor in marketing, but I always had a real love for television, radio, broadcast, just kind of the whole production side yeah. of it, the entertainment side of it, but as well as the advertising side of it. So, you know, admittedly, I just kind of fell into sales and sponsorships as kind of an accident. I got my degree and went into media research as an intern. Yeah. So, right. And things just kind of un unfolded from there. And I had some traditional sales jobs after working at a couple of ad agencies, network radio sales, cable television sales. When I worked for the channel or excuse me, the weather channel, I was one of the first people to raise my hand in the late nineties and be like, Hey, this internet thing, I don't know how to sell it. I don't know what we're doing with it. At that time, it was literally just banners and buttons. Right. But I was just like, this is cool, right? Yeah. This is totally new. It's totally different. It's going to be really interesting to see where this goes. So if you follow my career on paper over the next probably six, seven years, on paper, it looks like I'm definitely job hopping. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, I was actually chasing technologies. I was mm -hmm. chasing trends, right? And I admittedly grew really kind of frustrated with a lot of corporate jobs that I had sure. because I'm seeing technologies and trends unfolding. And I'm saying to myself, how come management isn't recognizing this? How come we're not being more proactive, adopting these technologies, 
utilizing this stuff, right? Whether it's the internet, um, even broadband. So anyway, skip forward and I was at MTV and I was in the games and entertainment unit and I worked on a property called Game Trailers. So the selling proposition for Game Trailers at the time was it literally just started as guys who were uploading trailers for video games, right? The same way that they have trailers for, for movies. Sure. Then user general, but the, the stick they had was there was no written content. It was all broadcast. Okay. Right. But go now, go, go back to like 2004, 2005 broadband, right? It's garbage. It's literally like, <laughs> it, it's not, you know, the 4k broadband, everything Nobody that could we watch have the now. Trailers. <laughs> so yeah, right. You could, but it was grainy and it was like a, small, yeah. but it was amazing that the audience at that time, right? The early adopters, the yeah. kind of feedback they were providing, the amount of information that they were providing. Then they started uploading their own content. Yeah. And arguably that website in particular, out of all the MTV properties I was representing, it killed it. Just explosive growth, explosive wow. engagement, click through, like all the stuff that advertisers were looking for. Yeah. Just blowing everything out. So fast forward a couple of years later and I go over to IGN. Because I'm, yep. I'm like, wow, this is great. I can just go to a strict gaming property. IGN at the time had what they called IPL, which was the okay. IGN Pro League. Mm. Arguably at the time, I would say that it was even bigger than Major League Gaming. Well, I would say that it was probably the biggest esports producer, event producer uh-huh. in, in the States, at least. Probably not globally, but in the States. And I went to my first esports event at the Cosmopolitan in Vegas. Yeah. I think in like 2012 or something like that. Anyway, like I said, having sold sponsorships in sports and concerts and music, being exposed to things like Comic-Con, I went to that event and I just saw like 2000 people that were going absolutely bonkers. Right. And it was, I tell the story all the time, but it was literally like seeing a sporting event, a music concert and Comic-Con all rolled into one. Wow. Yeah. Right? Like some people were dressed up, some weren't, but the kind of attention that they were playing and the enthusiasm that they were showing, I hadn't ever seen anything like that. Right. The other thing too, though, is there were no brands. Right. Yeah. I think it might've been like AMD or Intel, like super endemic stuff. Yeah. But, nobody was reaching out to the space at the time. Yeah. I'm just looking at it. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. So stay there for a couple of years. They got bought out and I, IPL, went away i think in retrospect because the, of the, lack of brands or so, they weren't able to no monetize? i mean look the, the ceo at the time who the ziff davis came in which is an online publisher uh-huh. and i remember talking to the ceo and i said look you've got a gold mine here like this esports thing this is phenomenal yeah i have to respect the fact that he said look i don't get esports i'm not an event organizer i'm an online publisher it's just going to be a distraction sure so he got rid of it he sold it off to blizzard Fortunately for me at about the same time, Major League Gaming came to me and said, hey, you know, we need someone to do sponsorships. We need someone to do media sales. Yeah. And I was doing really well. So went over there as vice president of, of sponsorships and, and, and sales. What year was that? Like what was in MLG's trajectory? Where were you? Was this the very beginning or were they kind of making some, some traction at that point already? Uh, I mean, a little bit of both, you know, they had been around since 2002. And this is one of the arguments that I make is that esports in its modern form, kind of the way production unfolds, the way the events take place, yeah. 
it's really kind of existed in its modern form for close to 20 years. Yes. Right? So that's MLG really kind of laid the groundwork for that. Arguably, you know, IPL, IGN, they kind of followed the same format, but uh-huh. just did it in a bigger way because they had a bigger platform. Yeah. So when I went there, I basically looked at it saying, hey, these are a bunch of gaming guys who don't really understand media. They don't understand sponsorship sales, which is my forte. I've got a passion for the space. Yep. Right. So I, I just was like, this, this is phenomenal. Yeah. So I thought they had a really good vision. Part of the challenge with, with major league gaming is that even though they were one of the biggest players on the block and they had access to and created some of the biggest events, the biggest stars, right? The up and coming stars, the optics, the phases, yeah, the cloud nines. Part of the challenge I think that they had was they didn't really know how to present that value proposition to the marketplace. Mm. So anyway, I was there for a year and a half and look, I have to give them credit where they were super flexible on certain things. They weren't flexible on other things, but I think it had more to do with a naivete than them just being kind of hardliners. But, you know, I'll kind of, I'll speed things up. It was really, really good. I, I was able to bring in like Pizza Hut as one of the key sponsors for COD Champs, I think in like 2013 or 2014. Yeah. But that gave me a great experience going to events and working on internal projects to work with specific teams and specific individuals that I saw as just having these massive followings within the space. So yeah. it gave me the opportunity to know the Hector Rodriguez of the, of the world, right? With Optic Gaming, Marty over at Splice, the guys over at Envy, the guys over at Cloud9. Obviously, I clicked with certain people more than others. Sure. But that's really, the MLG, I would say, is really what gave me the opportunity to access some of the major insiders uh, right. within the industry. Well, and then up until this time, what I'm seeing is you're working for other people. Right. And then now, <laughs> today, you founded three or four different companies. What was, did, was it something where you saw the opportunity and you were bumping against maybe the guardrails of the organization or you just said, wait, I can do a lot of this on my own. I'm one of the few people who gets it in the space. Or was there another reason that catapulted you and you said, I'm going out on my own? A little bit of both. Okay. So there were definitely, there was definitely a lot of latitude to do certain things, but not other things. Part of the challenge that I had was illustrating what the value proposition is. And I think what we need to keep in mind is at this time, a lot of these individuals or teams, Optic Gaming, for example, had 450,000 Twitter followers at the time. Yep. Nobody was buying Twitter followers. Nobody was buying Instagram. Nobody was really buying Facebook the way that they are now, right? Nobody lay that kind of social currency or value against that. But I'm looking at it going, this is insane. Yeah, These individuals and these teams have these crazy followings and we're not selling against that. We're just selling against eyeballs, right, on, on these broadcasts. So there was definitely some pushback from, from corporate, uh-huh. but because I got to know these individuals and I got to know the teams and just be on the inside a little bit, I got to know some of them well enough where I said, hey, you know, I'd love to see some of your sponsor contracts. Yeah. So fortunately, I found one individual in particular and and Hector. And I started looking at his contracts and I was like, this is insane. Now to Hector's credit, he was doing a really good job. I mean, having the kind of background that he, that he, that he had, um, right. Never selling sponsorship, never really participating in sales that way. 
managing a team, managing content, participating at a professional level, I'm looking, I'm like, you know, this guy's doing really well. But as I started to put pen to paper and started looking at the numbers, I'm like, I think I could really blow this thing up. Mm. There's a very uneven value exchange that's taking place here. These guys are really underselling themselves. Now, with these contracts, I mean, this is still something in the space that still needs to be figured out. And a lot of what you're talking about, it's funny because this is a while back and I'm like, boy, a lot of people still don't get it. There's, you know, there's very few complimentary experts who get the esports space, but specifically regarding contracts, were there common things across the different contracts you were seeing or was it very case by case that people were being taken advantage of in a lot of different ways? Yeah, so you could either look at it as being taking advantage. I look at it as taking advantage. I also look at it as being predatory. Yeah. There were, it was very consistent across the board relative to some of the language in these contracts mm. that were, to your point, again, just really taking advantage of the naivete, how young these people are. Look, they're, they're not business people. Right. So then when you go to them and you're like, hey, it's going to cost you like a couple of grand for someone to look over these contracts. Mm -hmm. They're looking at it going, hey, man, I'm like, (laughs) I'm doing everything I can just keep my head above water. I can't be paying legal fees for for this stuff. So a lot of times they would just blindly sign the contracts. Sure. But when I started looking at it and I saw the kind of rights that they were giving up, Mm. it, it just seemed insane to me. Yeah. Then I just started to look for loopholes. Right. Then I'm like, how do we get you out of this contract? Yeah. How do we go about this in the right way? Because look, a, l- a lot of the contracts that I was looking at, there's still players in the space today, these brands. Uh-huh. I don't know what their contracts are. I, I haven't seen them in a while, but hopefully we help lay some of the groundwork to change those contracts. I know that when we got out of those contracts and we started negotiating new deals, we flipped it where we started presenting our own contracts mm. versus taking contracts from the brands or, or the individuals. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, there's so much improvement that can happen in the space. And it's funny how, you know, esports is the buzzword nowadays. It's, it's the, the bright, shiny object nowadays, right. but there's still so much that is, I don't know if amateurism from a business standpoint is the right way to say it, but I think you have this dynamic where you have a group of people who understand esports, gaming, the audience, they play themselves, et cetera, right? And then you've got this gap between people with business experience, complementary experts, I call them. Right. And they just don't get esports and gaming. And one of the reasons why I get it, I, you know, I'm 38 years old, so I grew up around playing consoles. I was never the biggest gamer growing up. I was a skateboarder. And, you know, I got sponsored when I was 14, tried to do it for a living for a number of years. But my understanding of the space, actually comes from being a skateboarder. Because you think gamers are hard to reach, try to reach skateboarders. (laughs) But I'm curious, what is the thing, you clearly get it. What is it that, is it experience? Is it something else that enables you to understand the community and the space? Because that's very, very unique. As much as I love the space, I probably spend 90% of my time talking about everything that has nothing to do with esports mm. and has everything to do with the audience yeah. and just some basic marketing principles. Where I think the industry has been struggling quite a bit, to your point, is at least where I saw that the light bulb went on for me is 
when I was at MTV, when I was at IGM, when I was at Major League Gaming, it was always an education and in defense of gaming. Mm. I, I mean, it just wasn't changing, right? There's all these stereotypes, right. quite frankly, that are undeserved. And, and the industry was always on the defensive. So yeah. it was kind of a two-front battle. It was one is just like, hey, we need to show the world, the marketing world, this audience, yeah. right? This fantastic way to reach young men. But the other part of it was the industry always started out by having to defend itself against these really unfair stereotypes of who an average gamer, gamer was. And frankly, John, it was at that time where a light bulb went off in my head when I was leaving MLG and I was like, you know what? When I start my own agency, when I go to do my own thing, I'm not going to sell gaming. I'm mm. not, I'm going to position esports as sports and I'm going to start making parallels and comparisons between traditional sports and esports yeah. and leave the word gaming out of the discussion altogether. Mm. And I think yeah. that is really what, for me personally, helped move my business help the communication process helped with the value exchange. And quite uh -huh. frankly, I saw, you know, within a, a few years of that, all of a sudden the league starts selling it that way. Right. At this point, people, when they talk about esports, there's more sports comparisons yes. than anything. But if you go back 10 years ago, it wasn't, it was always defend gaming and then try to show why esports is better. Yeah. What I see as the recent rise in esports in the US, the popularity of it. This is my opinion. I'm curious what your opinion is if it matches up. Is I think it's all about brands, agencies, and traditional sports. Their viewership is declining, their participation is declining, and they're looking around and they're saying, Oh my gosh, what are all the kids doing? Because they're not doing our thing anymore. And they look around and they say, Oh, everybody's playing video games. Well, video games, non competitive video games specifically, are super difficult to integrate into, especially in an organic way that the community requires. Well, I, I know my time at GameStop, I was you know, trying to sell partnerships to people like Dr. Pepper, and they're like, John, a two-week campaign doesn't make a lot of sense for us to put any time and effort into because you're only marketing you know, COD or whatever for two weeks. You launch it, you go on to the next one. I said, well, how about a quarter? How about fall title season? Well, half of those uh, titles, I don't want my brand around because <laughs> it's red blood, it's mature, whatever the reason is. Well, brands and agencies, traditional sports, they look at this ecosystem and then they see sports. And what they see is familiar, sponsorable assets. And they say, oh, I see venues, teams, leagues, content, jerseys. I see places for my logo. I know this space because I've done it in the NFL. I'm going to take that. I'm going to put it here. It doesn't quite work the same because younger people demand more from brands. And I think gamers specifically demand even more. Skateboarders demand a little more. But I'm curious, that I think is the reason for the last four or five years you've seen this massive rise in popularity in the space. Do you agree with that or do you disagree or you see something, a different reason? I agree, but I think it's because the industry's hand was forced. Mm. I've been very vocal about, look, I, I think television has been dying for at least 15 years. Yes. I think the television industry, I think ad agencies, quite frankly, are their own worst enemy. The mm. way that you saw, you know, look, cable television was introduced because like, hey, you're going to pay for this content, right? We're going to give you a ton of different content and there's no commercials. Right. I mean, literally within a very short amount of time, 20 to 25 years, all of a sudden you're seeing like 20 to 28 minute commercial loads per hour. Wow. 
Well, it's like YouTube nowadays, right? Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, we see the same thing. The thing that was beautiful about YouTube a couple of years ago is, hey, I could watch really cool content, things that speak to me, follow people that that I like. I can watch hours of uninterrupted content. And, you know, a lot of influencers, a lot of individuals, a lot of companies were incorporating, really getting back to basics. They were incorporating the brand message within the content itself, making it part of the content, mm-hmm. which they were very creative at it. You know, look, I'm, I'm a traditional media kind of history buff. But yeah. when you go back and you look at the origination of radio, when you look at the origination of television, mm-hmm. they didn't have commercial breaks, right? They would talk about the sponsor. Good point. Television in particular would oftentimes make the brand or the product part of the skit so well that you had no idea it was a plug yeah, until it was actually the end of it, right? The audience was participating. Yeah. So we saw a resurgence of that. The challenge we have right now with YouTube in particular is not only do you have the creators putting in these awesome plugs from their sponsors, but at least with traditional television, there was a natural break within the content. Sure. Now, I, look, last night as an example, I'm, I'm trying to watch a six-minute video. There, there were literally like eight commercial interruptions. Yeah. Some were six seconds. Some of them you have to watch for 15 seconds. And they're coming at these just really awkward, weird times. Was this YouTube or was it another platform? So No, it was YouTube. Yeah. Right? So, again, the challenge now, it's... We saw all these people leaving television, right? The, these diminishing audiences. It's becoming increasingly difficult to reach men 18 to 34, adults 18 to 34, right? Even yep. women. So I, I, what I try to tell people is I, I look at it. It's very similar to the way the UFC exploded, esports, is, okay. or the way NASCAR exploded. Uh-huh. The reality is NASCAR had a huge following. It wasn't until some executive at NBC stumbled upon a NASCAR track in the middle of nowhere and said, holy shit, there's like a hundred thousand people here, <laughs> right? Watch it. And then they looked at it right. and said, oh, you mean this happens every week? Oh, this travels <laughs> right. all around the country. Uh-huh. Oh, maybe if we put, you know, some cameras over there and over there, right? And that's, if you yeah. think about it, that's the way NASCAR formed. It became one of the biggest advertising opportunities. Sure. If you look at the UFC, it's the same thing. There were MMA gyms all over the country. Right. There was a huge fighting, right, MMA fighting community, but it wasn't until someone might might have been Fox Sports that stumbled upon it and said, "Wow, there are all these gyms and like filling up with hundreds and thousands of people competing." Again, yeah. what if we organize this, made an octagon, right? Like, yeah, two men enter, one men leave, and put some production and everything, and boom, it exploded. Right. I think esports is very much the same way. What I try to tell everyone is. The audience has been there. Now, look, it's, it's definitely been growing exponentially over the last few years. Yeah. But the audience was there. I would argue that it just really wasn't until the last few years where marketers were just struggling so hard to reach that demographic right. that they just could no longer ignore gaming and esports yeah. in particular. Well, I think to add to that is it's the combination of technology and gaming becoming mainstream. You now have the ability to stream where you didn't have that ability before a number of years ago. And now everybody's a gamer, right? We see Juju Smith-Schuster, you know, OBJ is, I think he's investing in EFUs or something like that. You know, we're, we're seeing the popular kids are gamers and they're proud of it. There's no closet gamers anymore. In fact, people are saying I'm a gamer when they're actually not. So I think those things 
in addition to what you said, also contribute to, okay, this is where the brand dollars need to go. But I'd also say it's a lot harder, right? You're taking these strategies with the NFL, with a group of people who accept marketing, they accept advertising. I always use the example at the Dallas Cowboys game. Have you been to a, a Cowboys game yet? In the- uh, not in the new stadium. All right, we'll have to talk to Complexity and get in there. <laughs> but they have a little <clears throat> Albertsons blimp. And Albertsons is a grocery store. One of the, I think the Cowboys have like over 200 sponsors in that arena, it's in that stadium. It's insane. So the Albertsons blimp flies around. It's a little blimp. They're like, oh, cool. Albertsons, that's kind of fun. Maybe I'll go shopping there sometime. I always use the analogy, if it was an esports tournament, (laughs) depending on how Albertsons integrated with the rest of their strategy, gamers are going to say, the hell are you doing here? Albertsons has nothing to do with gaming, you know? Right. Like, what are you doing here? But in football, we just expect everything to be branded. What do you see as ways, you've, you've done some of the biggest partnerships in the world, and in this space, and a lot of really good ones that I'd love to talk about. But what do you see as enabling brands to be successful in this space? What is one or two things that... I, like, my my simple rule with every brand is don't try to recreate the wheel. The thing mm-hmm. that's cool about esports and gaming in particular, what I call gamertainment, is there's so much that already exists yeah. that can be amplified. Uh Or there's a lot that can be supported that where I see brands making mistakes is they come in and they try to do cool stuff, right? Mm. Where they try to get kind of, kind of chintzy with it or not chintzy, but they try to get kind of cute with the, with the content that they create, right? Like to, to talk to this audience. Look, the reality is I I think the esports and the gaming audience has always been able to project what the trends are. Uh-huh. Right. And what they're going to be, their Absolutely. early adopters, the yeah. technology. Where I think the audience where I think the industry has done itself a, a disservice. And look, admittedly, for me, early on, this was part of my preaching is like, hey, you can't come in here and go willy-nilly. Like if you screw this up, the audience is just gonna kick your ass. Yes. Right. They're gonna be very vocal. Yeah. I think we've evolved to the point where it's not just gaming. The reality is that 18 to 24 year old demo, if you make a misstep. I don't care if it's gaming. It doesn't matter what the content is. It's just that demographic is going to be very expressive because they have tools available to them that we weren't looking at 10 years ago, right? right. Whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, there's a million different ways for them to express their displeasure. But I also argue, I would say that they're very forgiving as well, right? So if you come in and you make a misstep, if you own up to it, if you engage the audience, they'll definitely step in and be like, yeah, let's, let's take it in this direction. But my, you know, my recommendation to brands is like, look, you can't just come in and slap your logo. And I, I, I was on a panel last week and, and we had this discussion where I can't tell you how many brands that we've spoken to who say, you know, I, I want to run a two week test, right? We go through all this education. We go through all this work. We take them through all this research. We take them through all these anecdotes and they go, cool, we're ready to do a test. Now, nobody calls up the New England Patriots and says, we want to sponsor the team for two weeks. (laughs) Test it out, right? Like it, it just doesn't happen. Why there seems to be that. Well, I, I would argue maybe that's because the NFL is proven. You know, where you, you, league has literally been around 101 years, 
where, okay, esports has been around 20 plus, but the, the emergence of it, the, the recognition of it, the last four or five years in the U.S. a lot of times. Would you say that, that that has something to do with it or? No, I disagree. Okay. And I disagree to the extent that the research within gaming, the engagement, the numbers, if you really dig in and look at it, I, uh-huh. get, I mean, it's not, I get, my, my argument has always been the audience has been there. The audience has been massive. Yeah. It's just that the industry's hand was finally forced because TV ratings are in the tank. Okay. Right. And they see how big social is. And the yeah. extension of esports and gamertainment, how it bleeds over into social, right? And it's this kind of 360 degree communication opportunity with the influencers, the teams, the brands, the content that yeah. you do not get on through other mediums, period. Right. So, like I said, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities. It, to me, the education has more to do with just showing them the different facets of the industry. Mm. What I try to do is reverse engineer yeah. everything, right? A little trade secret, okay. um, but really not. I think anyone who's doing their job in this industry from a marketing standpoint, a sponsorship standpoint, where I sit is, I just say, John, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your message? Right. Right. And then let's look for opportunities that yeah. are going to complement what you're trying to accomplish. It could be a personality. It could be a team. It could be a league. It could be, it could just be, you know, a logo slap on something like a, a Twitch rivalry series. You know, I, I think a lot of the marketing industry in general has gotten so hyper-focused on data and mm. engagement and it's completely ignored the awareness play, right? Now there yeah. are definitely some brands out there that they still are about awareness, but when yeah. they look at gaming and esports. They just need someone to come in and say, look, this is your awareness play. Right. This is your reach play. Now, if you want to get hyper engagement, right? And if you want to get more, more feedback from the fans sure. and you want more of a communication, then we go in a different direction. I, th- I think, quite frankly, that's what a lot of the industry is, is lacking from a sponsorship yeah. and engagement standpoint with brands. And I think, too, what might be a misstep is only going after awareness, like making sure you have that piece that adds that enhance the experiences of the community so that they embrace you and then you do the awareness, in my opinion. What, what do you think about that? I, I think that, here's my perspective. Young people are skeptical of brands. Gamers are more skeptical for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're so passionate about what they're doing. Number two, they've been hated on their whole lives and these brands are just showing up because now this is where the money is and they know it, right? Well, my view is if you enhance the experiences of the industry or of the community rather you give them what they want but they can't attain for themselves your brand is embraced and and it doesn't have to be hard i think a a few examples of that from a category perspective are the fan experience how somebody watching the stream or going to an event how is it better because of your brand right Right. oh i'm snickers (laughs) you get vip or you get a behind the scenes tour with hex at the at the cod champs or something like that competitive experience this community wants to play themselves. They don't just want to watch. So facilitating opportunities. And I I think the Chipotle Challenger series has done similar things with this, but you're providing opportunities for people to compete when otherwise they wouldn't be able to. Content, you know, I mean, Hector is the king of content. Optic has been the king of content. Just providing meaningful content, meaning, and I love what you guys did with Brisk. You know, what was smooth competition? Right. These guys aren't even, you have gaming influencers 
who aren't even playing video games. They're trying to hit the crossbar on the soccer goal out in some field in Chicago somewhere. But because people fall in love with these personalities, it works. Sort right. of a thing. Yeah. In-game items, you know, is another one where I think that's maybe the hardest one, maybe the most expensive because you have to deal with publishers. And then the other thing that I think is true for all youth is unique experiences. And that's different from these other ones where everybody wants a selfie moment, right? You want to be able to go do something that's unique that your friends either validate or generates FOMO with them. Right. And if your brand can take credit for doing these things and providing these things to the community, they embrace you and then they love you. And then from my perspective, you add, okay, it's that awareness. It's that um, eventually getting to a sales KPI, not right away, but right. What, what's your opinion to that perspective? So, yeah, look, I, I think you're on and those, that's actually where the opportunities are, right? So yeah. starting backwards and working forward, there's, you know, something like brisk. If, if you look at a lot of the engagements, a lot of the sponsorships that we created, they really have nothing to do with gaming or esports. Yeah, right? that's we're, interesting. We're, we're basically just showing these individuals participating in lifestyle activities that the audience identifies with. Right. Right. So it's like, you know, what are the lifestyle interests that these individuals share with their community that the brand can complement? The other thing, too, you know, you had mentioned events. What a lot of people don't realize about these events is they're, it's really more like attending a marathon or, or, or like going to, it, it's like a mini Olympics, right? Because most of these tournaments, they last three days. There's a lot of <laughs> downtime, right? True. So that's something that we worked on with Turtle Beach as an, or excuse me, Turtle Wax as an example is that, hey, there's a lot of downtime at these tournaments. So what are fan engagements that Turtle Wax can offer that's going to entertain the fans, right? Bring some value keep them engaged and that we could actually do on site. Right. To, to add value, to add to the experience. So that's why I said there, there are things that the industry, that most brand marketers don't recognize that, mm -hmm. that, that are actually there. And then there's what I would say is when you, when you talk about those unique experiences, it's not only yeah. for the fans themselves, but because so many esports pros or influencers, gaming influencers at such a young age, yeah. there's a lot of things that they're experiencing for the first time. Good point. Right? So if there's a brand that can bring something to the table to help them experience something that they haven't before. Cool. Yeah. Right? And, and it could be non-endemic, but, and then finally with something like a brand like Chipotle, you know, one of the major exercises we went, we took with them early on was it, what, like, what's missing? What can we do that actually is gaming, that is esports, yeah. right? That we can put a little, put a little gasoline on this and sh shed a little light on it. Sure. And that's how the Chipotle Challenger series was created. It was basically recognizing like, Hey, we know there are a lot of amateurs out there. We know a lot of people out there are really, really good. Yeah. We're going to give them a platform to show their skills and reward them. Right. Whether or not it leads to anything, who knows it has since evolved where now it's more like a pro-am where we give amateurs the opportunity to play with, professional basketball players, right? Professional football players, yeah. gaming personalities, right? That gives the fans an opportunity not only to show how good they are at gaming right. and esports, but it also gives them an opportunity to be, play against some of the biggest personalities out there. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to go back to the test part of it because I think that's really <laughs> interesting. One of my many opinions <laughs> is that 
we as the gaming community, the esports community, we're not so much skeptical of brands for coming into the space as much as we are fearful they're going to take what they want and leave us. And this has happened over the course of the history of esports where you, you have a brand, big brand, a lot of dollars. They buy into esports, right? Let's say it's Best Buy. And uh, Best Buy comes into esports and they say, okay, we want to throw Madden tournaments and we want the championships to be at Dallas Cowboys Stadium and we're going to give people the unique and competitive opportunities to play on the biggest LED screen or, or 4K uh, right. high resolution screen in the world, right? Oh, awesome. They've got a ton of money. They're putting it into this space. Hey, mom and dad, remember that thing that you told me I wouldn't ever make myself of gaming? I'm making money competing now because Best Buy's in it. Hey, guess what? I've been grinding with my friends, putting Xboxes together, doing LAN tournaments. Now I can hire my friends. I can make a living in this industry because this big brand comes. Then guess what? Either the sales didn't match up with what the forecast was or a new CMO comes in. They say, nope, we're going back to the NFL. Everything falls apart. Everybody loses their competitive money-making opportunities. Right. Everybody loses their jobs. And then that happens again with another brand. And now, from my perspective, our community has seen these brands come in and they're like, all right, we'll see. We'll give you a minute. So because that's a tough thing, I, I see it as difficult to go to a brand and say, you got to be in this forever. You got to have a five-year strategy. It's like, bro, I got to crawl, walk, run. I, you know, I'm going to get fired if I try <clears throat> this thing. It works out or I can't sell this ahead unless we do a test. This, I think, will be valuable for our audience. How do you talk to companies convincing them to do a longer play or the appropriate play right, yeah. when they're like, I got to do a two-week test? Yeah. So I think the most powerful word that you can use when you talk to a, an agency or a brand uh -huh. is the word no. Okay. Right. So basically what we, uh, look, we're fortunately me personally and the company is far enough along that we've established credibility yes. within the space. But I can tell you along the way, there were a lot of times where um, it was a choice between, you know, I got to pay the bills. I've got employees. I can just do what the client wants us to do, uh -huh. knowing it's going to fail. Right. Or I'm just going to say no. Yeah. And we just said no. And that actually, right. And I was like, look, we, we had certain clients. I said, look, if this is what you're going to do, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. If you want, like, so one of two things is going to happen here, right? Either you're going to do what we tell you to do. We're not going to do it at all, or we're going to do it your way, but this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And fortunately it worked out every single time. I, I don't want to give the specific examples because sure. one of the one of the questions that I tend to shy away from, people say, well, tell us what brands are doing it good, right? That's great. Yeah. More than that. Tell us which brands are doing it bad. Uh -huh. I don't like to call out brands for doing what I see as failures sure. because many of the brands that I see who come into the space and they make missteps, fortunately, most of them stick with it. And to me, that's more that's important, awesome. right? Yeah. Like maybe they're learning and it gets back to what I was talking about earlier where, you know, maybe the fans are going to pile on, maybe some of the pros are going to pile on. But yeah. I also say it's a very forgiving community and that True. it's it's cool for them to be able to see, okay, this brand is evolving. They're taking the time to understand us, right? They kind of, yeah. <laughs> they had to kind of tuck their tail under for a little bit. So 
But for, for the brand, I mean, I, I think a lot of agents, it's twofold. One, it's either just at the individual individual or the agency really doesn't know what the hell they're doing in the space. They just right. see a money grab and they're like, hell yeah, I'll do it. Right. Right. Or there are people like myself who say, you know what? What are you trying to accomplish with that? Let's yeah. establish the KPIs up front. I totally get the crawl, walk, run. Yeah. Right. And I think we've been really good at working. Look, Chipotle, Turtle Wax, both of them were very much a crawl, walk, run. And we were able to take them through what that process looked like. They participated. We had the talent. We had the teams. And I I think that's really key as well is having. One of the things with with Hector and I, I remember we actually went to OMD in New York and the Pepsi Brisk brand manager was there as uh-huh. well as some of the leading people from the agency. Okay. We literally sit down in a room like just me and Hector. There were about eight people there and yeah. there's this big silver suitcase unmarked on briefcase on the counter. And it was literally the new product. They, they were coming out. Cool. Right. Yeah. Now pour it, try it. <laughs> so Hector and I bo- both drink it, right. And we have a conversation and they start talking about things that they want to do. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. So we start talking about what we want to do and they're throwing out some suggestions and look, Hector was great because even though I say the word no is a really good way to influence people, you don't want to just say no. You want to say no, but then give them the solution. And that's where I think Hector and I had a really good working relationship is the, the unwritten rule we had is, Hey Hector, I'm not going to tell you how to do content you're not going to tell me how to do sales. But we both got on the same page where he knew I had his back that if the brand wanted to do something and he knew it wasn't going to work, I was going to back him 100%. Yeah, that's not good for anybody. Right, for, for better or for worse. and the brand. But what yeah. was good about having Hector in the room and, and the way we work through stuff is like, hey, you know, Pepsi, you want to do that? It's not going to work, but this is why it's not going to work. Here's some alternatives. So to their credit, they were flexible. We worked through a couple of things, smooth competition, right? I could give you a bunch of examples, but fortunately it worked out really well. So we leave that meeting and we get in the elevator and we're the only ones and we're starting to go down like 40 floors or something. And I look over at him and he's, he's just kind of staring up and he's got like a little bit of a smirk, a little bit of a sigh of relief. I said, what's going on? And he goes, it's like, man, thank God it tasted good. <laughs> right? Because he knew good the point. importance of it. He knew like, hey, if this doesn't taste good, like the money's phenomenal. We can really use this deal. But if it doesn't taste good and the fans get a hold of this, you know, like it, it's something that's going to have to be addressed eventually. Right. But like I said, I think a lot of the fun part of that exercise, whether it was with Brisk, whether it was with Turtle Wax, even Turtle Beach, even with Endemics, yeah. is it's always no, but this is what we can do. Absolutely. I think that's so important because a lot of these brands that are the first thing, right? Like what, well, when they're I'm going- sorry to interrupt, but I, I would argue when, it, when we look at brands that make missteps, yeah. again, it's one of two, two things. It's either they have people consulting them that really don't know the industry, right. or they're just saying yes, and they're presenting something they think that's going to add value, something that they think is going to be funny, yeah. something they think is going to be cool. And it's just not right. Right. So it's a hard learning experience. Yeah. They're, they're not coming with ideas that they think suck. <laughs> they're right. sold yeah. on their ideas. 
they think they're good or sometimes they're just so self-focused. I, I remember, oh boy, when, when I was at GameStop, I remember we had a, a big meeting, marketing, merchandising. It was the one year, the, this is going to be the plan. We walk through it. You know, you got to clear your calendar for the right. day. And I remember some of the marketing leadership like walking through this. And I remember at the very end, the person said, and that's what we want to do this year. And I remember thinking, is that what our customers want us to do this year? Right. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> you know, because it was all self-focused. It was all very transactional. Right. And so I think one of the things that's required, and this alone is a foundational thing to build on top of, is just being community focused. Just being others focused. Going to them first. Thinking of them before you think of yourself. Right. And I, I've shared this with a number of people. I had an opportunity. I, I was able to host a, a private roundtable with Gary Vaynerchuk. And we brought yeah. in all these esports industry influencers. It was really a great experience. And I asked Gary, I was like, you're this marketing genius. This seems so easy to me. Why don't people just go to the community, say, we're going to enhance your experiences. We'll be patient on our KPIs. And we also just want to know from you, what do you want? Because the community will tell you this. And he said, John, 98% of CEOs won't listen to that just because they think they know it all and they don't care about anybody else. I was like, if that's the truth, and I don't know if it is, but if that's the case, how unfortunate. It's not hard to reach the space. It's just specific. Yeah, look, when, you, when it comes to like CPG companies in particular, major yeah. retailers, I'll just call them Fortune 500 companies. You know, for a lot of these marketing gigs, it's required that you get a master's degree. Right. What the, the individuals that we've worked with, the companies that we've worked with where we've been most successful yeah. is quite frankly, I think a lot of the brand managers that we deal with who come into this space and we run successful programs, they throw a lot of what they learned out the window. Mm. Because I, I don't think there are master's programs out there today that show you how to engage the audience. How, you know, the, the way yeah. people look at social media metrics is not the way you should be figuring out how to engage the audience. Right. There's so much concentration on the data uh -huh. versus the behavior. And mm. even the behavior, they try to funnel down into data. Right. There's a big yeah. difference between listening to an audience and analyzing data. And that's where I think I look, it's not just esports and gaming. I mean, I, I think that's just kind of a problem that I see that's becoming somewhat prominent within marketing in general. Is we have people that are paying way too much attention to data. They're paying way too much attention to metrics. I probably came into the industry kind of on the cusp or the end of the madman area. Uh -huh. Right where yeah. I mean, literally very early on at an agency, I remember going out for three martini lunches. I'm 26, <laughs> 27 years old, and I'm getting right. blasted at lunch. You could argue against that all day long, but the one thing that it always fostered was creativity. Like the data was always secondary. It was always the idea, the creative approach that was first. Yeah. Now everything's mm -hmm. kind of flipped. It's like, look at the data and then come up with the idea later. Do you think that the fact that we have access to so much data now is what is fueling that bad behavior. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, I think it's become paralyzing. Yeah. Cause back then it's just like, Hey, I'm Dan. 
I've done this stuff. I know this space. Trust me. Look at my look at my credits, right? Yeah. All these people and I, you know, if I didn't have this data, I'd say, gotta trust the guy. He's got something. He knows how it works. Now pouring over these spreadsheets. Right. It's you got so and so who's very analytical, isn't a creative marketer sort of a thing. They're like, I gotta hit these KPIs. It's all about the numbers, the eyeballs. And then anything on a spreadsheet loses the hu- the humanity of it, right? Yeah. And so you're not thinking about the gamer, how to enhance the experiences, how to make people who are so passionate about the thing that they love, help them enjoy it more. It's like, how many eyeballs did we get? What was the impressions? What was the engagements? And you're looking at people as impressions and engagements rather than human beings who have these desires right. yeah. that you can help fulfill. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is, you know, there are clients we've worked with where we could literally equate an increase in sales yeah. to their esports efforts. Yeah. But where I think part of the challenge is with marketers in general is look, all of it, we everyone loves big numbers, right? So, well, every couple months when Newzu or YouGov or whoever puts out their super data, right? They put out, oh, there are 1.8 billion people participating in esports. Right. Right. So part of the challenge is esports is used as a very ubiquitous term, right? It it's does. just like saying the internet. It's just <laughs> like saying sports. Right. Yeah. So that gets back to the reverse engineering. It's like one of the numbers that frustrates me more than anything is when they talk about hours watched, right? Uh, so yeah. last week, the top 10 Twitch channels generated like 1.8 billion hours of, you know, right. viewable content. I look at that and I go, what the hell does that even mean? Right. Is that a billion people watching for an hour or is that a hundred thousand people watching for 20 hours? That's a really big difference. Yeah, it's a way to put a big number out there and try to tie a CPM right, to it to say, right. hey, look, you're 250K, it's worth this. Boom, boom. Right. Yeah. So that's where I think a lot of struggle is in the industry. Meanwhile, you know, I'll have a client that'll be like, oh, well, we used to get more likes or we used to get more engagements. Or we, and I, I would immediately go back to, but your sales are up and we can equate it to this. Like, you're always going to see yeah. that initial bump with something new. Good point. Right. And then it's, it's just like any other relationship at first it's new, it's exciting. We're all learning about each other. Then you got to figure out how do you get to the next stage, right? Right. To maintain that and and to grow with each other. Right. And that's where I think the, when the data is presented, everyone gets so bogged down in the data that Mm. they start to forget about the things that actually brought the partnership together. Right. And and to go on a journey. It just is super frustrating for me that, look, I don't want to say that data is not important. And that you shouldn't set in certain KPIs or ROIs or however you want to look at it. Right. But I do think at a very short amount of time after success, especially within esports and gaming, that all of a sudden the benchmarks just move very quickly. And there never really seems to be a lot of rationale behind it. It's just like, well, we did 10% or we did X number of engagements. We have to increase that. And I'm like, why? Right. Like we're maintaining the audience. Your sales have gone up. Right. They're still maintain that we're bringing in more people. What, what, what are the really important numbers here? Right. Good point. Well, we're talking a lot about, you know, what brands can do right, what things have gone wrong. We have about a little over five minutes here. And I want to get this in at the time of this recording, the esports certification got destroyed online, got announced. <laughs> I think the, the community greatly said, wow, there's a lot of advisors here, a lot of good people who we trust somehow this thing got put out by a lot of people we trust and it also costs $400 and it looks like you're 
creating loot boxes for the business community. Right, yeah. Talk a little bit about the the lessons that can be learned from that so other people don't make the same sure. mistakes. One thing that I've been a broken record about is people doing their homework in the industry when they go to hire people, whether it's, you know, someone that they're hiring on the inside, if they're hiring an agency like mine to help them with their brand initiatives, right? Research initiatives, activating at events where the esports institute or esports certificate institute, whatever it is. Um, right. I, to me, it's, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think the intent was good, but there were two major problems. One of the problems was that I think a lot of people on the advisory board weren't necessarily participating in a true advisory role. Right. Right. Like, I, I don't think that there was this, it wasn't super well organized on the back end where right. there were these formal meetings saying, hey, these are things we want to tackle. It was probably a, a loose network of a bunch of individuals who said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll help you with that. It sounds interesting. Yeah, and the people who created this thing kind of took some liberties that maybe they, they should not have. Because sure. uh, I know a lot of individuals, as do you. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, there's no way that these individuals would surprised. sign off on this stuff. But I saw that advisor. Right. I know some of these people are, are good friends of mine. And I was like, whoa, but that, look, they must I, not have been very involved. Th yeah. There are some people that I know that were involved on a higher level that were kind of taken back by the way this whole thing unfolded. Yeah. And I had a really good conversation with one, one of them yesterday. And what I expressed to him and what I would say to anyone who's listening is my frustration is that I feel like gaming and esports are always on the defensive meaning right we've always had to defend ourselves against you know a gamer right like there's this perception right that a gamer is this you know big nerdy guy in his basement eating exactly you right. know chips and energy drinks and right that that's totally not the case right the first conference i ever spoke at i invited one of the brand managers to participate for one of the major sponsorships we sold yeah. The second question from the audience was basically tell us your opinion on, you know, why gaming is contributing to mass shootings. Right. Right. And I did the same thing. I was just like, I mean, in, in my head, I'm screaming. Right. Because I'm like, there's nothing to validate this at all. Absolutely nothing. But here we are literally, instead of talking about all these successes, we're immediately put on our heels to defend a false Defend narrative. Let's see it. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and then when I saw the Esports Certificate Institute and they're like, hey, you know, we want to fight nepotism. We want to, we want to push for more diversity. We want, you know, there, there's all these bad hiring practices. I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's not the way you approach this. I'm the kind, the kind of guy where I'm like, you know what? It, let's identify. Okay. If there are problems, let's identify them. But why are we having the, these problems? So, it's twofold. I know we're short on time. I think part of the problem is, I, I think the problems were exaggerated. I'm not saying that they don't exist. Easy to happen on Twitter, right? right? Like it's a massive I mean, industry. To me, I'm like, start with a positive and work your way backwards, right? So me, it's like, hey, we've seen explosive growth. We've seen all these opportunities, right? The industry yeah. needs a lot of people, but the industry is also having a difficult time finding these people, sure. right? The other part of it too is what people need to remember is there are more 25 year old CEOs in esports and gaming than there are in any other industry. Good point. The positive there is that we have a lot of young entrepreneurs that are doing really kick-ass things in the industry. 
the bad thing is they don't have the business experience, right? right. That once their business hurt, hits a certain level to take it to the next level. Right. So I would say that they're not necessarily lazy, but they fall back on their naivete and they just start hiring people around them that they're comfortable with and they know. And then right. the third faction is you have a lot of outsiders, right? Trying to grab a piece of the pie who have no idea what they're doing and they get frustrated because they're like, you know, we we're coming in, we're trying to participate and we can't hire the right people and they right. wind up being taken advantage of. And then when it gets to diversification, I, mean, I, I could give you a dozen examples of transgender people, right? Men competing against women like esports and gaming has been light years ahead of any other industry. Yes. And they're very proactive, right? Again, right. not saying that there aren't issues and problems, but there's so much good. Why, why are we concentrating and starting out with a negative? That's a good point. One thing that I love about this industry is, you know, this industry has issues like every industry, but what I see, and I don't know if it's specifically gamers or just young people in general, but the issues that our industry has, the community confronts them and works on them and works to fix them rather than saying, we've always done it this way or that's not really happening. And right. I think it's so positive about the space. Yeah. I mean, when there's bullying that takes place, yeah. to your point, right? I see more people coming to the defense of the individual than right. necessarily piling on. I also look at, there are a ton of philanthropic efforts that take place that are either organized or on an individual basis, right? Gamers yeah. outreach, like different ways. Right. There are a lot of veterans groups that are utilizing gaming to right. help disadvantaged communities or to help people that have some kind of a learning disability, physical disabilities. That happens on an organized level, but that also happens where, you know, you'll see an influencer and they're like, hey, Oklahoma was just ravaged by a tornado. I have a bunch of friends there. Right. Let's help them out. Right. Next thing you know, they raised $50,000 for these that never, ever gets promoted. And, you know, right. as, as we close out the conversation, that is one of the things that I would say is that I would love for the esports and gaming community just to be more proactive mm -hmm. about educating on the successes, boasting about our successes, boasting about our accomplishments versus always starting off from the negative and in the position of the defensive. I, I think the industry just really yeah. needs to go on the offensive to start promoting all the fabulous things that are not only a part of our history, but what's unfolding now heading into the future. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm going to start doing that now that you mentioned that. that that's awesome. And you, you made so many great points. So I appreciate your time here. Thank you for joining us here on the DLC Drop podcast. Before I let you go, let me give you an opportunity to plug whether yourself stacked. How do you want people to get a hold of you? Or are there things that people should know about that they may not? Uh, you can go to the website. I'm super easy to get a hold of. Reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. You know, the only thing that, that I'll plug is I'll, I, I've got an op-ed that I'm putting out tomorrow on LinkedIn that addresses some of the negatives that are presented within the industry, right? And just yeah. kind of a different take on, on how we should be approaching that and, and looking at that. But hey, whether you're an individual, a brand, we've done some really cool stuff and we're always happy to learn what, and, and understand that there's a lot of things out there that we still have to learn. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a fun ride and it's going to get even better. Awesome. I'm looking forward to a lot of adventures with you as well. We're going to yeah. do some fun Appreciate stuff. Appreciate the time. So, absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the DLC Drop Podcast. This has been Dan Ciccone. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Future Eye Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. 